Well, good morning. It is always good to be with you. I want to say just a word about the Making Everyday Discipleship Commitment Cards that hopefully you found on a seat, uh, either that you sat down on or one close by. Uh, We have been encouraging everyone the last couple of years uh, to be intentional about where they want to develop in their uh, discipleship. And so, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it'd be nice if a discipleship growth just happened on its own, but it takes focus and it takes making a decision. And so we've, we've talked about our discipleship as something that, that lays claim on all aspects of our lives. And we've broken up our lives into seven major categories. Hopefully you see that on the card. You can see that in the insert as well. Um, and in the insert, in the bulletin today, you can see the various uh, training programs, the, the various pathways of formation that you can choose from. Uh, And we want to get on with offering those to you. And so we kind of want to close this window of discernment and decision-making today. So if you've been thinking about signing up, uh, if you've been thinking about placing one of those cards in uh, any of these boxes that are near our exits in this room or at the Welcome Center, today's the day we'd really like to encourage you to do that. I'm always hesitant to show you a full page of reading material right before I preach, uh, but, but please make sure that you take some time to think about How do you want to be shaped in this coming year as a follower of Jesus? Specifically, what part of your life do you really feel like God is calling you uh, to develop and grow in uh, in this coming year? We're going to have time later in this service to turn those cards in if you haven't done that. And so hold on to that, uh, and during our shepherd's blessing, you'll, you'll have an opportunity to turn those in. I also want to take just a moment to honor Brenda Jameson, our our office administrative assistant who helps all of us in all kinds of ways. She has been serving at this church for 15 years. Uh, She is a faithful servant. I know so many of you have have been helped directly by her. And so if you see her this morning, uh, hug her neck and just speak some words of blessing over her. If you want to send her a note in this, this coming week, do that. I know especially with our digital world, when you receive a handwritten note that you can hold on to and cherish, it makes a a huge difference. So, Brenda, thank you. Uh, Thank you for all that you do. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you uh, offering our hearts this morning as we open up your word. And we pray that you would change us as we listen. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us the kinds of people you're calling us to be, and that we would trust and obey in response. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I I was waiting uh, in a nice restaurant in a nice part of Houston, and I was waiting for an extended family member who I hadn't seen in years. And for the sake of of the story this morning, I'm I'm just going to call him Teddy. It's been a long time since Teddy and I had spent any time together, and I'll I'll confess to you right now, that was not on accident. It's just difficult to be with, and we couldn't be more different in terms of the kinds of of daily life that we live. And so I got there a little bit early because that's the kind of person I am, and he was running late because that's the kind of person he is. And I'm, I'm looking around, and it's one of those, you know, 
lunch places where most people are, are trying to eat healthy and salads and there's nice gentle music playing in the background and suddenly Teddy is on the outside of that glass door and I brace myself for the impact. And he opens up the door and over that nice civilized music and all these people trying to have lunch meetings, he bellows out, cheer! It is so good to see you, man. I haven't seen you and I don't know how long. Get over here and let me hug your skinny neck. <laughs> and so I go over and I submit myself to this hug where he's basically picking me up off the ground. And he pats me on the back and he kind of, I mean, he, the, the hug's over. And he's still got his, his, his hand on my neck. And he goes, man, you really are skinny. And he kind of tugs on it. And I think this is what a chicken probably feels like moments before it becomes someone else's dinner. <laughs> and everybody at this nice place is looking at me like, what are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm wearing like khaki shorts and a blue polo. And he's wearing black from head to toe. And he's got a long chain, I guess, attached to his wallet or something. And he's got steel-toed boots. I mean, he looks like he should be beating me up and taking my lunch money. <laughs> and we're going to have lunch together. And the thing about Teddy is he just, he's not just big and loud, but he's opinionated. And he holds on to his opinions much more firmly than he holds on to facts. And he wants to know what you think about everything. And he definitely wants you to know what he thinks about it. And if you don't agree, there's going to be a problem. And so he starts asking me all these questions about, you know, the, the big picture of our nation and our world and all this stuff. And he, it's not that he spent a lot of time reading or anything. He's just thought a lot about it. And so he starts talking and he's, it's just, you know, his setting's at 11 on the volume. And I keep trying to get him to talk quieter. And he just keeps going on and on about all these idiots that don't think exactly like he does. All of these horrible people who are ruining the country and ruining the world because they're not exactly like Teddy when it comes to his political and social agendas. And he's not just saying, you know, aggressive things, but he's cussing every other word, it seems like, and he's pounding on the table, getting worked up, assuming the entire time that I completely agree with everything he's saying. And at some point, you know, and I, these people, it's like if they have a toddler, they've pulled that toddler closer to them. You know, they're looking over, shaking their head, like, why did you invite this guy here? And, and I'm thinking, why did I accept the invitation to be here? And I'm getting more and more embarrassed, and I end up kind of having a little bit of a backbone. And I said, well, you know, Teddy, it, not everybody thinks the way you do. And this anger flashes in his eyes. And one thing you should know about Teddy, I'm, I'm not exaggerating this. I know when preachers tell stories and there's facts in it that you find hard to believe, you call it a preacher's story, which is a nice way to say lying for Jesus. That's not what this is, okay? He has a scar on his forearm that is there from biting his own forearm when he gets angry. He's disfigured his arm. That's how he handles his temper. And when I said to him, not everybody thinks the way you do, he moved his forearm up and I said, no, not here. Don't do it. And, and we started talking and I said, look, there's people of goodwill and good conscience that can reasonably disagree about some of these things, Teddy, and they're not destroying the world just because they don't see everything exactly the way you do. And then the, the anger subsided and he kind of laughed and he said, oh, you, you've always been weird, Jared. I... I it doesn't matter. It, do, it really doesn't matter. Because we're family, right? And 
I said, yeah, Teddy, we're family. <laughs> and, and the thing that was so difficult about the lunch for me was it was plainly and painfully obvious that Teddy enjoyed being with me. He was enjoying our lunch. It was torture for me to get through the lunch. And so when we get to the end of it, I get in the car, and I'm kind of shaking from the experience and thinking just this wave of of relief washes over me. You know, and the last thing he said to me was, I I hope we do this again sometime soon. And I just kind of, you know, shook my head and didn't say anything because I was hoping we would never, ever, ever do that again, ever. Ever. And so after that relief washed over me, I was immediately filled with guilt. Because all I had, all I had to do was, was sit through lunch with him, and I almost couldn't do it. Because of how different we are. Because of, of how difficult it was to feel like we could, could, could connect and understand each other. And I knew it wasn't right. I mean, as hard as it was, as challenging as it wasn't right for me to have that that posture of heart towards somebody in my extended family who assumed that because you're family, you're friends. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus ends up having a meal with some people that, that bother other people. He ends up having a meal with, with what you say are the wrong types of people. And he doesn't just get folks looking at him and focusing on what's happening and acting irritated. He has some religious leaders see it because it's so far outside of their imagination of how a rabbi should be acting and living. They they can't help themselves. They've got to say something. And so he has to deal with not just people noticing, but a question that feels somewhat like an accusation. If you got your Bible open up to Luke chapter 5, we're going to start reading together in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, obviously, they complained to his disciples loud enough for him to hear because he answers them. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, we're today closing down a a three-week kind of mini-series that that we've been calling Jesus Is, right? And we've been wrestling with the question of what is the core identity of of Christ? Who is he when all is said and done? And, And you can never fully explore all of the different possible true answers that you could give to that. But we've been focusing our hearts on at least thinking through, reflecting on, how would we answer that question? Who is Jesus, right? And two weeks ago, we listened to John the Baptist preach, and, and he, he preached a sermon about the world the way God wants it to be, right? The world made right. And, and he 
he really forced us to face the question, do we really want to live in God's version of the world made right? Do we really want to live in the kingdom that, that God is ushering in through the ministry and the presence of Jesus? It is a world with no peaks and valleys. It's a world with no haves and have-nots. It's, it's a world where nobody's hoarding power and resources while other people don't have anything. It's a world where, when it comes to basic necessities, everybody has enough and nobody has way too much. That's very different from the world we're currently living in. And John knows it. And he says, do you really want to be a part of that kingdom? The choice is yours. You either really do want to live in that kingdom and you're going to reorient your life around it. Or you may just talk like you want to be a part of that kingdom because you're still wondering what kind of benefits it can give you. But you're not really going to change much of anything because you've benefited from the brokenness of the way the world currently is. And you're nervous to think about the world changing radically enough that your life would have to change. right? And so we, we talked that week about the idea that Jesus when we ask the question, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is he's the, the end of our old life and the beginning of our new life. In that new world that God is ushering in, and we still have to choose, is that what we want? Do we really want new lives that we get to live in that new world? Just last week, we listened to Jesus preach his first sermon. And he, he reads from Isaiah 61, where he says, you know, I have been called, I have been empowered to be the one who preaches good news to the poor and set the captives free and gives sight to the blind and lifts up the oppressed. That's who I am. That's what my ministry's all about. And he makes it clear, as much as we may be tempted at times to think he's just talking about the spiritually poor and enslaved and wounded and oppressed, he doesn't just mean people who have those spiritual experiences. He's also talking about people who, who experience that in their everyday lives here on the earth, people who are literally poor and enslaved, wounded and oppressed. And he says that saving people has to include more than just talking about a future and heaven. It has to include here and now on the earth. And do we really believe that? Do we really believe that, that saving people is, is as much about improving their physical experiences and situations now as it is investing in their spiritual journey from, from now until they get to heaven one day? Right? That we have to balance those two aspects of what it means for somebody to experience what it is to be saved. Because it looks very different when you strike this balance than if you pick one over the other. And Jesus says, look, the Bible talks about this. But I want it, I want it to come true in my ministry with my people. And so we, we last week answered the question, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus isn't just in the Bible. He's the Bible coming true. And when we partner with Jesus, we get to be a part of the great promises all of the promises that God has ever given us, the Apostle Paul says, they come true in Jesus. And Jesus would say, they come true in us. Right? They come true through the incarnated Christ that's alive and well in the church. So this week, we're going to answer that question one last time. Who is Jesus? And this morning, what we're going to be focusing on is the fact that Jesus is God's way of showing us that transforming love isn't about making threats, it's about choosing hope. Now, I want to be as clear as I can. 
As we have focused on the Gospel of Luke, and, and of all the Gospels, I personally find the Gospel of Luke to be the most challenging. Because Luke is the one who keeps us from constantly spiritualizing everything, and he keeps pulling it back into our everyday experience. He keeps pulling it back into this world. And he says that God wants to change this world, and God wants to use us to bring that change. Right? And he never, he never really swerves away from that. The way some of the other gospel writers, they have other concerns, they have other areas of focus. Luke is always focused on this world being changed by the transforming love of God. And it means it's hard for us to decide we can hear the story, think about it, maybe have different feelings about it, but then not go ahead and live differently in response to it. Luke, Luke won't let us off the hook. But I want to be clear. I don't think this, this whole study over the Gospel of Luke is, is supposed to lead us to a place where we feel a lot of pressure to go and do, to go and be something that we can't possibly imagine, right? To, to turn our whole lives upside down in a moment in response to it because that's just not sustainable, right? The Gospel of Luke isn't saying that, that you're expected to quit your day job and go move to another country, right? It's not about you adding just random things onto your already hectic daily schedules, Right? I'm not telling you that you have to be a mom and a teacher and a wife and, and a community activist as well. That's, that's not really what I'm trying to communicate here. What I think the Gospel of Luke is trying to get us to understand is we need to be awake. Where we already are in the relationships that, that many of us already have, or at least the, the connections that we already have with people... We need to be awake. We need to be aware because every single day, you and I go places that we already have in our day planner. We're already going there. And there's people there who need more help than they're getting. And Luke says, why don't we see those people clearly? Right? Why aren't we aware? Why aren't we awake to all of the opportunities God gives us every single day, wherever we're doing, wherever we are, to do more for somebody than we're already doing in the name of Jesus, because if we'll find a way to be awake, to see it, to see them, to see the opportunities, this world really will change from the way it is now to the world God promises it can be. We have to start somewhere, Luke says start here. We have to start sometime, Luke says start now. And in Luke chapter 5, he says sometimes it's as simple as who you choose to eat with. Who you choose to share meals with. In Jesus' day, he didn't sit down and, and share a meal with just anyone. There was a cultural expectation that the people you chose to share a formal meal with were people that you already had a meaningful relationship with, or they were people that you wanted to have a meaningful relationship with. It, I go back to, to the first day of school when I was growing up and and, you know, you get to lunchtime in the cafeteria and you've got your tray and you've got all these tables and you've got choices to make. You know, and you always want to choose wisely. Because you feel like whatever table you end up at is going to define who you are, at least for that school year, right? And so you, you want to make sure that you, you sit with the, either the people you're friends with already or the people you wish, in my case, the people I wished I was cool enough to sit with, right? That... that that's on a, on a real basic level, but it's very similar to the kind of social expectation that people had in the ancient Mediterranean world. Now, it wasn't just a social expectation, it was also a religious one. 
As far as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were, were concerned, if you sat down together and share, shared a formal meal and a prayer for that meal, you and the people eating with you were considered a religious community. Right? You were this small gathering, this, this small congregation of believers. And that meant you were never supposed to share a formal meal time with, with anyone from a different faith. And, and if you were a practicing Jew, you didn't want to share your table with somebody who had fallen away from practicing your faith. So when Jesus accepts Levi, not only as a disciple, but, but also as a dinner companion, along with all of Levi's friends, Jesus is breaking the rules, the established understanding of the religious establishment of his day that said you choose who you eat with because who you share meals with is who you're saying you want to share life with. You've got to choose wisely. You've got to be careful. And they didn't get this expectation from just anywhere out of the air. They got this expectation from their reading of the law. Right? I think it's too easy at times to turn the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law into kind of one-dimensional villains in these stories because they're engaging with Jesus in ways that are almost always critical. But they're trying to figure out what it is he's doing. It doesn't fit with their moral imagination. And, and again, that comes from what they think is a correct reading and application of the law. Jesus is doing something that is clearly not in line with that expectation. They don't understand why he would put his standing, his soul, right, at risk by sharing a meal with these kinds of people. Tax collectors and, and the people they ran around with, right, most of us have heard this at least one time or another uh, because we don't exactly like, like tax collectors now. Uh, if you're a tax collector, I'm sorry. Jesus loves you. I, I didn't mean to. Uh, but, but we've always struggled, right? And especially in, in the ancient world, they, they kind of universally despised this corrupt local con artist who, who would steal from anyone, who would take advantage of any situation, who would say anything to get what they, they wanted. They were the opposite of respectable people who were trying to live out the kind of life that God had said I want my people to try to live this way. And so the question I think the Pharisees are wrestling with at some level, they don't say it this way, but I think what they're struggling with is, what could these people have possibly done to make Jesus want to share life with them? What could they have possibly done for Jesus to want to be friends with them? And so when they ask, right, why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners, what they're really asking is, why do you welcome tax collectors and sinners into your life without demanding that they change their lives first? Right? The change should come first, before the acceptance. Again, this is how they understand what they think God wants them to do, what they think God wants them uh, to to live like. And Jesus is, is doing something that just doesn't make sense to them. They're convinced that, that this is how the world works. Sinful people always negatively impact sacred people. They have no, they have no way to imagine an outcome where sacred people could positively influence sinful people in a way that would save them. 
Not, not in a social situation. They, they have no expectation that that's possible. The moral gravitational pull always went one way, right? And it wasn't from, from you know, sinful to sacred. It was always that sacred people were being pulled into sinful behaviors when they spent time with sinful people. You know that this is the case because we still operate in many ways with this skepticism about how, how time spent among friends works. Right? We have maxims in our culture warning us not to spend time with people who might pull us down, who might pull us astray. This is not unique to the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This is a human instinct, especially those of us who are trying to raise younger people in our homes and in our lives. We're worried about the people we're with, and we're definitely worried about the people they're with. Jesus He's modeling a different way. And he believes that sacred people can help save sinners by sharing life with them. That that it really is possible to show broken people a better way instead of demanding that better way from them right at the start. I'm convinced that this story, like the two stories we've been walking together uh, through in Luke, has immediate impact for our everyday lives if we'll let it. Because it means that if we're not having to defend why we're hanging out with certain people, we are not following the example of Jesus. If we're not having to explain why we're so accepting of people who aren't yet close to living the way they should be, we aren't following the example of Jesus. Or maybe a more uncomfortable way to state all this is our friends should call our reputations into question. It happens to Jesus and Luke. It happens to the early church in Acts. It should be happening to us. People ought to look at some of the folks you spend time with and shake their head in confusion trying to figure out what you possibly have in common with them. Right? People ought to look at some of the friends that we have and, and wonder what in the world we're doing spending time with them. We should have friends who are still struggling with lying and cheating and stealing. If we're not having to explain why we're friends with people who are clearly not practicing Christians, we aren't following the example of Christ. Now, I know this church knows that. As challenging as this idea is, I know this church knows this because years ago now, you came together, prior to me being here, you guys came together, you prayed about it, and you launched an outreach ministry that we call Bar Church. It's it's an incredible community of believers that meets in what is now uh, an ex-bar Um, And yet they come together, and many of those people struggle with visible, life-controlling issues. Here's the difficulty with that. It's easy in a church like this to start an outreach ministry like that and have a handful of people love it and care about it and go do that work in ministry, and for the rest of us to act like our church does this so all of us as individuals do this too. As much as I love Bar Church and the fact that that's a part of our story, 
It's not enough for a handful of people to run that ministry and the rest of us to pat ourselves on the back because we have that ministry in a brochure. We have to find, as individual believers and disciples, a personal commitment to developing friendships with people who are so different from us, it makes it difficult. That's who we're called to be if we're saying we want to be like Jesus. Now, I want to be crystal clear. Putting your reputation at risk is not the same thing as putting your soul at risk. Okay, I, I want to be clear. Your soul is at risk when you spend time with people who have the same exact struggles that you do and they revel in those sins. I really think the direction of your life is at risk if you find yourself in that kind of place with those kinds of friendships. But your reputation's at risk when you make friends with people who have struggles that you don't share in the same way and through sharing life, you can show them a better way. Do you see the difference? Do, do you see the distinction? What this means is that you and I need to know our souls well enough to know which kinds of sinful, destructive behaviors really have a hold on us, really have a, a power over us, and which sinful, destructive behaviors we're able to faithfully resist. I mean, we all have sinful, destructive behaviors that are out there that we're pretty much immune to. For whatever reason, we're just not wired in a way where we're tempted by those things. We need to know, when, when am I in danger and when am I just uncomfortable? There is a difference. And, and parents, I'm telling you, as my daughters are getting older and older, I just want to keep them inside our house all the time. Right? Far away from anybody that might hurt their feelings or, or treat them in a way that would make them feel like they're less worthy. Or more than that, as they get older, I'm worried about the, the ways that they may have friendships with people who don't share our values and our commitments and they may pull them in directions that make me scared. I understand the struggle as a dad of two daughters. And every dad of a daughter in this church keeps telling me it's going to get worse. So thanks for that. <laughs> if we're going to be a Christian family, my daughter should have friends that aren't Christians. That's what it means. And I need to know my daughters well enough to know which friends could pull them in directions that, that are destructive and dangerous for them and which friends have struggles or difficulties that my daughters can help them with. I need to know the difference between them being in danger and us being uncomfortable. There is a difference. And students, I want to speak to you right now. You need to know your own heart and soul enough to know. Are your friends somebody that you can bring closer to Christ? Or are your friends pulling you farther away from Christ? You know you may not want to talk about it. You may not know exactly how to communicate it, but you know the difference. You know the friends you can influence in positive ways, and you know the friends who, for whatever reason, have a hold on you and may pull you in a direction you don't want to go. But for God's sake, we have to have these kind of conversations with ourselves and with our families if we're going to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. We have to. We don't get to just decide that somebody else can develop close relationships with people who are difficult and different from us because that's their calling and my calling is to do all the things that I like and make me comfortable. 
Jesus is our model. Jesus is our example. We don't get to pick and choose what parts of Jesus' life we're going to listen to and respect and which parts of his life are just too hard for us to follow. In Luke 5, it's a challenge for me, I'm going to tell you. Here's the thing, we're not just risking our reputations. When we develop intentional friendships with people who are so difficult for us to initially relate to, right? It's not just your reputations at risk. You're risking rejection. Because you may develop a friendship, an authentic friendship with somebody who doesn't share our values, who doesn't see the world the way we do, and over time, having patience, you may, you may discover that they look at our way of life as much as we're able to follow in the Jesus way of life, and they may decide, you know what, I don't want that for me. They may not be ready. They may not want the advice that we're trying to give them within the context of that authentic relationship, within that friendship. But that doesn't mean that when we face that rejection, we get to just give up. We have to keep trying. We have to keep going. You know, sometimes I think we talk about the resurrection as if it's only life after death. But what it really means is we never stop. We never give up. And when our souls go through the painful death of rejection, we rise up again and we try again. We can't force anybody to change. All we can do is stay close, love them, and ask God to change their hearts over time. That's how transformation happens. There are moments, miraculous moments of change in people's life. But when you look at their entire life from top to bottom, it always takes time. What that means is we're going to have to learn how to be truly comfortable in our own skin. Comfortable enough to let people who are shockingly different from us still be close to us without giving into the pressure to compromise who we are and what we believe. I want to say that one more time, right? We've got to be comfortable enough to let people who are shockingly different from us stay close to us without compromising who we are and what we believe. I know that sounds really hard. Welcome to discipleship. Jesus is willing to be a friend to, to people that were, were considered less than good people because he knew what was at stake. His soul wasn't at risk, but their souls were constantly at risk while they were living a life that was all about themselves and not about the true life that God wanted them to experience. In other words, Jesus became their friends not to get them to repent, but because he knew they needed repentance. And we all know from experience that repentance is more than just feeling guilty about mistakes we've made and saying, well, I really hope that I won't make that mistake again. Repentance isn't just feeling bad about your way of life. Repentance is starting to live a brand new way of life. Jesus expects his, his different way of life, his alternative way of life to inspire others to live that way too. He accepts people who are obviously visibly struggling with sin with the hope of transforming them. Jesus thinks the best program we could ever develop to join God in saving people is by befriending them. I mean, really, being true friends to them, sharing our lives with them. That's, that's what he's asking us to be and do. Jesus doesn't ever love with threats attached. He loves with hope attached. And he wants us to learn how to love people that way too. Jesus really is God's way. 
of, of showing us that transformational love, it's, it's not about making threats. It's about choosing hope. This isn't about making broken people feel worse about who they already are. It's about showing them a better way, a, a, an alternative way of life. And in order to show them, Jesus says, we have to be around. We have to, we have to find a way to be there and to be awake and to be for them. When we share our lives with someone who's been deeply wounded by the ways of the world, when we really share our lives with them and our lives are a part of Christ's life, we get to touch what's broken in them with the medicine of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, I can tell you this much about gospel medicine. It always works. It always works. But for that healing to happen, we're going to have to be friends with people that the world has labeled as bad. Maybe people the religious world has labeled as bad. People like my extended family member, Teddy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an early, an early favorite of mine in terms of Christian authors, once said, as long as you despise another person, you'll never be able to help them. And then listen to this sentence. Nothing that we despise in another person is entirely absent in us. We need to learn to regard people less in light of what they do or don't do and more in light of what they suffer. Right? Less in light of what they do or don't do and more in light of what they go through. So go out this week, brothers and sisters, and make a new friend. Or rekindle a friendship that you've lost. Choose someone as different from you as you can find. Risk your reputation, not your soul, but risk your reputation. Share a meal, have a few laughs, and instead of focusing on all the things that, that, that you might feel are wrong with them or bad in them, find a way to see the good in them and then try to find a way through God's grace to help that goodness that's in them grow. Make the choice to truly share your life with somebody. That's a real challenge. Stop looking at them in light of what they do or don't do and start seeing them through the lens of what you know they have to go through, all that they've had to suffer. I promise you, if you'll look at people that way, it, it doesn't matter how different they are from you right now. If you'll look at people that way, you'll see somebody worth loving. You'll see somebody worth saving. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who helps us understand that if we really want to change somebody, we don't use threats. We choose hope. That's who Jesus is. May we find a way to choose that hope together. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, our shepherds and their spouses will be outside this, this room in this lobby area waiting to talk with you, to pray with you. If you came this morning with anything on your heart that you'd like to share with, with a leadership couple, to be prayed over, talked about, you want to know more about our church, you want to know more about, about Jesus, whatever it is, please go to them as together we stand and sing.